0: Everyone, thank you so much for checking out this Market Scale podcast. This is an extended conversation that I had with Chris Martin IV, the current CEO of Martin Guitar, while I was up in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. and We shot an episode of Made in America up there, but we had to just use bits and pieces of this interview and couldn't air the whole thing, unfortunately. So instead, we decided to turn it into a podcast so you could hear the full conversation, which really gets into the history of Martin Guitars, how it started, some of the innovations over the years, and really get that full sense of how things started in 1833 to where they are right now in 2019, about to be 20. 20- so that is what this podcast is. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And be sure to go check out the full episode as well of the uh, of the actual Made in America episode because it's, uh, it's a fantastic 22-minute look at the history of Martin Guitars as well as the manufacturing process and all of the craftsmanship that goes into it. So I think you will really enjoy that as well. But for now, enjoy this conversation I had with Chris Martin there in the museum at Martin Guitar. So Chris, when we talk about Martin as a guitar company, as a brand, we're really telling a story almost of your family and of a lot of innovation that's occurred over the years. Take us back to the beginning. I mean, we're standing here by some of these very, very early guitars. Tell me a little bit about how they were developed and how your family started making these.
1: So C.F. Sr. came to the U.S. 186 years ago Mm -hmm. in 1833. Prior to that, he worked in Vienna. in the Stauffer workshop. Mr. Stauffer is is known today as the father of the Viennese school of guitar design. And so these are Stauffer-influenced Martin guitars. Came to New York City, opened a shop at 196 Hudson Street. And I think, you know, the advantage he had was certainly he knew what he was doing. Right. And America was ripe for the guitar. The advantage the guitar has always had it, one of the advantages is its portability. Mm-hmm. So you're an immigrant. You're coming to some city on the east coast. You may not stay. That may be the landing point, and now you're headed west or south, maybe by Conestoga wagon. Right. And you could find room on your Conestoga wagon for a guitar. Right. Piano,
0: not so much. Not gonna happen. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Harp, a little bit right. harder, but uh, guitar, yep. definitely yep. more portable. So
1: he lived and worked in Manhattan right. for, was it six years? Mm-hmm. Let's see.
0: Yeah. 33 to 39?
1: And I think what was going on was Mrs. Martin, mm-hmm. she would come out periodically to visit friends who had settled in the Lehigh Valley, German immigrants. Right. And I think she went back one day and said, We're moving.
0: <laughs> <laughs> happy wife, yeah, happy right, life, right? Right.
1: I, I have found a community similar to the community we left in Germany, mm-hmm. same topography, rolling hills, Pensil, you know, Pennsylvania Dutch, Pennsylvania Deutsch, German immigrants. Right. And, and so in 1839, they moved out here. And so let's, we can walk over here. Yeah. They wanted to live in Nazareth. Mm -hmm. Um, Nazareth was back then, when Nazareth was settled by the Moravians in 1740, the Moravians were pretty progressive. Can you compare them, say, to the Amish or the Mennonite? More progressive, except when it came to family. Right. Very insular. And so even in 1839, Mm -hmm. if you weren't born and bred Moravian, you could not live in Nazareth. Fascinating. Yeah, so they ended up buying a piece of property right up The street here, Mm -hmm. right? Cherry Hill on the top of the hill. And then in 1858, the town incorporated itself and they moved downtown and we built what we call the old factory in steps over time. Mm -hmm. So what happened in this transition from New York to Pennsylvania is that at the same time that they moved the business, CF pivoted in terms of what he decided to make. And we have really good records. We don't have any diaries. <laughs> so, you know, short of ha- having a time machine to go back and go, C.F. What were you thinking? What were you thinking? <laughs> a couple of years ago, a bunch uh-huh. of guitar scholars, believe yeah. it or not, there are guitar scholars, came and said, we want to try and unravel this mystery. I mean, mm-hmm. What mystery are you talking about? Well, why, in fact, did C.F. basically stop making something like this yeah. and start making something like this? and the conclusion they drew after a lot of research and looking at the progression of his work
2: mm-hmm.
1: was and there was an exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York to coincide with the publication of the book cool they concluded that what most people even back then mm-hmm. pictured in their mind when you said guitar the image they had was of a very traditional spanish classic guitar
2: okay yeah
1: not a stauffer guitar the only Compelling design feature of this look that mm-hmm. has survived, and I have to believe—I never met him—Leo Fender. Were you inspired by the Stauffer headstock, or you, what?
0: You'd almost have to you right? almost have to believe that it <laughs> yeah. was, right?
1: Okay. Yeah. So, what, so the advantage he had, and they talk about this in the book, mm-hmm. is that back then the Spanish builders were located in Cadiz, which is down southern Spain, right on the Mediterranean, hot right. and humid. The guitars, even though the Spanish have always wanted to export, the guitars didn't travel very well. No. Yeah. You, can't, you can imagine that that would be the case. Hot and humid. <laughs> yeah. You bring them to New York City, Pennsylvania, or Boston, or Philly. Not a lot of climate control. Winter, <laughs> in the crack. 1700s. Yeah. So he said, okay, that's what the customer wants. I can build that. Mm-hmm. I know how to build guitars. Sure. And I think the advantage he had was he built them in the climate in which they would live.
0: Mm. That
1: makes a lot of and sense. And so when someone bought it and it survived the winter, they're like, hmm. That was a good value. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So now people are saying Mr. Martin makes not cheap guitars, but they are durable. Right. They they will be there when you need it a year from now, two years from now, or as we've seen oftentimes, ten or twenty or thirty or fifty years from now. Sure. Okay. Sure.
0: So uh, one of my questions is yep. the move to Nazareth. Um, away from New York. Yep. Nazareth and, and this community yeah. has about a, a bit of a history of craftsmanship right. and so more people that were probably able to then learn the trade and Possibly. become part of the yes. business as well.
1: I think, you know, had he stayed in New York, so I actually, I, I joke with the Steinway folks. <laughs> Mr. Steinway mm-hmm. founded his business in Manhattan yeah. and he went over to Brooklyn. Right. So right. yes, I think, you know, manufacturing in Manhattan, they've always had manufacturing, but mm-hmm. this is significant manufacturing yeah. you know you're manipulating big boards and machinery and that's better done not in an urban environment
2: mm-hmm.
1: so you know had cf gone the other direction we might have been ultimately been neighbors with the steinway factor <laughs> so yeah <laughs> so he, they come out to the lehigh valley and they find people mostly men back then yeah that were inclined to embrace woodworking mm-hmm. that they found it compelling as a job yeah and I think the other thing that, that even today, you'll see it when you get out in the shop, there's a great deal of pride mm-hmm. in doing this craft at a very high level. Absolutely. You know, that's, that's what, we're making the real thing here. We're not making a copy, right. and so you know, when, when you say, where do you work? I work in Martin Guitar. Oh, what do they do? They make the best guitar on mm-hmm. earth. That's something to be proud of.
0: It's something to be proud of, and, and I think for it to be for a lot of people that probably born and raised here, to get to be a part of that eventually is something that uh, has to be an exciting and and prideful thing, almost, you know.
1: We've never done this. But if we were to ever do the family tree mm-hmm. of current and past Martin employees, it would be three-dimensional. Oh, sure. Oh, that's my cousin. Oh, that's my neighbor over there. My yeah. aunt works back there, yeah. Right, right.
0: <laughs> I think we've met five people in town already, and all okay. of them have somebody, have some right. family member, have some connection to someone yeah. who works yep, yep. here. So this is really a, a community, yeah. a business built around yep. the community, and they're almost, you can't separate them. Yeah,
1: so here's a quick funny story. Yeah. Down at the Steel Stacks, Jeff Parks had the vision years ago to convert the old, part of the old Bethlehem Steel factory mm-hmm. into a performance space. Very cool. The performance space is right in the middle of the abandoned Bethlehem Steel facility, mm-hmm. sponsored by Yingling Beer, Peeps, and Martin Guitars. So here are these three small, originally small, now medium-sized manufacturing firms that survived yeah, yeah. Bethlehem Steel. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. Yeah.
0: So what in those early days began to separate Martin guitars mm-hmm. as unique, as different than maybe other uh, other people that were making them? Uh, what were some of the early innovations that, that CF had that really okay, kind of so started the, to set Martin the,
1: apart? The one thing, and, and again this came out in that study of you know, why did he stop and start, Yeah, is he also developed but I'll call a proprietary way of bracing the top of the guitar. Mm-hmm. So the the guitar needs to hold itself together. Here's the guitar. Right. You know, you've got this resonant box. You want enough structure so that it doesn't self-destruct, but no more. Mm-hmm. Particularly on the top. The top needs some structure, but it also has to vibrate. Yeah. And so you're really you're 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 trying to accomplish two things at once. You've got to so balance don't durability. Move, move a lot. Yeah. Right? Durability and resonance, right, basically, right? right. Yeah. So now that he, now he's copying the spa- traditional method of building a Spanish guitar, mm-hmm. which includes very traditional, you actually tie the strings onto the bridge. Right. It's, it's cumbersome when you want to change strings. Definitely. But it, that's, what, that's how they do it. Yeah. He was also, and going all the way back to mm-hmm. Stauffer, making what were called pin bridge guitars. Yes. So in this case, the end of the string has a little ferrule, mm-hmm. metal ferrule, and you push that down through a hole, that kind of goes up and anchors onto a plate, yeah. and you put a pin, much easier to change the strings. Definitely. Okay? And people, some people might argue it gives you a little more resonance. What the scholars who were doing this research determined that if he was, which he was, using the very traditional fan bracing mm-hmm. that the Spaniards have developed, and he was using a pin bridge, it's quite possible that when he went to drill the holes in the top, he was drilling through a brace. Ah, uh, Okay, they have actually they, they had some pictures. And they said Chris look at this and you can just see he nicked it But if you go right through it, you gotta start over. Yeah. Oh, and so what what they saw was as he was building He said I got to move these braces out of the way mm-hmm. and so over time. He kept moving them until he said wait a minute Now that I'm at this point. Why don't I just make this a simpler thing and he developed what we call Martin X bracing Wow, and so even though you don't see it it worked yeah, and we still use it today.
0: That's incredible. How about it? That's yeah. incredible. So that's a that's a big early innovation yes. that really kind of led us. Yep. And to, many of our
1: competitors, if they don't copy it exactly, mm-hmm. they use it as a jumping off point for their idea on how to improve upon Martin Express
0: Okay, that's that's really really fascinating. Yep. So then moving forward, yep. what kind of continued as you built upon what he had created okay. in those early days? But what what came next?
1: So now we're in Pennsylvania, the mm-hmm. business is running, Yes, we're seeing some growth. CF Junior mm-hmm. happens yeah. and decides, I'm going to join my father's business. So I'm a little bit of a student of family businesses. I go to family business conferences, sure. I get Family Business Magazine. And when you, when you read about the history of successful family businesses, the key more often than not in the transition from the first to the second generation, mm-hmm. the second generation, should not mess with the sauce. Mom or dad came up with an idea, yeah. created a business. Mm-hmm. My job as the second generation, basically carry on. And that's what C.F. Jr. did. He helped his father make more of the things that his father came up with. Interesting. C.F. Jr. was not particularly an innovator per se. Mm-hmm. And in the case of a second generation, that's okay.
0: Yeah, he didn't need to get into the doesn't middle need, of things. He didn't need yeah. to, no. Yeah. That's really interesting. Right?
1: And through a, you know, a time when the 1800s, you know, so back during the Great Recession, mm-hmm. we got hit hard. Yeah. Late, but hard. Because we're like, hey, we're, this is going to miss us. Well, it didn't, yeah. All right. Yeah. And now we're, you know, everyone's nervous. I'm like, what can I say to my colleagues? And I'm like, wait a minute. We've been through this before. <laughs> so I Googled recession, depression mm-hmm. in America. And sure enough, back in the 1800s, the United States economy went from boom to bust sure. periodically. Sure. And that's one of the reasons that banks are regulated today. Mm-hmm. Cuz you know, banks would open and they would close and the customers like, "Where's my money?" Yeah. It's gone. <laughs> and a civil war. Yeah. You know, we're trying to run a business while 50 miles away Americans are killing Americans. So there right. were there were external challenges that they worked through to allow the business to survive mm-hmm. to accommodate the third generation. Right. Frank Henry. I don't know why he wasn't CF the third.
0: <laughs> I, I don't know. He's the, he's the black sheep in this yeah, whole yeah. Uh, this But whole then change. my dad
1: was named after him. Sure. All right. Okay. So Frank Henry shows up, mm-hmm. going to carry on, and it turns out he's a little bit more like his grandfather. Interesting. He's an entrepreneur. Okay. He is in, into in innovation. He's yeah. into really go, looking beyond what the founder did, right. using that as the foundation, no pun intended, <laughs> but building upon it. Yeah. And so one of the first things that he did was to get into the mandolin business. Okay. Fascinating. And very successfully, the mandolin, the original Bullback Mandolin had mm-hmm. come to America with Italian immigrants yes. and become wildly popular. Yeah. So we get into that business, all right? And then shortly thereafter, the ukulele becomes a thing.
0: All right, where does that come from? Well, how much
1: time do we have? (laughs) All right, so we've been in the ukulele business for Mm -hmm. over 100 years. Okay. And it was just a couple of years ago that it was the 100th anniversary of us being in the ukulele business. So I decide to do a little research.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Where did it come from? Yeah. So my take on it is, after putting all these pieces together, is that the ukulele exists because of the California Gold Rush. Ah. Why is that? Okay. Yeah. So, there's a lot of money in San Francisco during the gold rush, mm-hmm. right? And people wanna spend that money. Sure. They've been working hard up in the mountains, they came to town. They wanna live it up a little they wanna bit. wanna live it up. Sure. And one of the things they wanted was sweet things. Mm-hmm. I want a piece of cake. Yeah. I want some sugar in my coffee, <laughs> right? Well, the sugar was grown in the Caribbean. It's a long way Sure. from the Caribbean to San Francisco. Right. So a couple of entrepreneurs said, well, you know, let's go to Hawaii, because Hawaii was now, you know, more, to the US. A little more accessible. Exactly. Yeah, sure. And they said, cane will grow here. Mm-hmm. It's very labor intensive. They went to Portugal and, and offered work to unemployed young men. Mm-hmm. Lisbon, Portugal was at one time one of the wealthiest cities on earth because of its maritime culture. Right. Then right. they had a devastating earthquake. Mm. And even a hundred years later, the economy was in shambles. So these young men are like, yeah. I'll take the work, and the entrepreneurs were clever in that they said, all right, it's a bit of a commute,
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> but we think
1: that because you grew up on a boat, you'll be okay yeah. with spending who knows how much time on this boat to get you from Lisbon to Honolulu, right. all right? <laughs> Whew. They yeah. bring with them this little indigenous Portuguese folk instrument about mm-hmm. this big called the machete, okay. and the native Hawaiians incorporate that into their musical culture. Wow. Yeah. So, so Frank Henry saw that the demand for ukuleles was increasing mm-hmm. and in one of the books I read they, they, they said on speculation he made a couple of ukulele prototypes and sent them to a Martin guitar dealer in Honolulu. Then the dealer was very nice, wrote a nice note, and sent them back. Yeah. Said, Dear Mr. Martin, thank you so much for attempting to make a ukulele. By the way, you make great guitars. Unfortunately, you don't have a clue oh. when it comes to making ukuleles. He made them like guitars. Okay. Spruce tops, rosewood sides and back, sure. a little overbraced, and like, oh, okay, well, that didn't work. Then we got busy. <laughs> then there was a, a, a World's Fair in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and one of the exhibits was all about Hawaii and its culture and its music, and yeah. that kick-started an interest on the mainland in Hawaiian music. And that's when he said, look, no fooling around. We've got to get into this ukulele business. Yeah. We bought a couple of Hawaiian ukuleles and copied them. (laughs) And off to the races we go. There you go. There you go. Let's stop here for a minute. Yes. This, now you can't, you look at this and you go, Chris, I can't see what it is you're about to tell me. So these now are Martin guitars, right? Mm -hmm. You can see Martin in them. Yeah. But they're still the origins of every one of these can be traced back to Spain. Right? Yeah, right, right, right. Slot head, mm-hmm. wide fingerboard, flat fingerboard, 12 fret. Yes. And so during this period, and say really in the teens and in the 20s, mm-hmm. we very quickly transitioned from gut to steel strings. Right. Very quickly. Yeah. And unfortunately, again, no diaries, no time machine. I wish I could go back and say, <laughs> Great grandpa. Why did we do this? Why did we do this? Yeah, right. yeah. So I was in Nashville a mm-hmm. couple years ago having dinner with George Gruen. And George is a very knowledgeable vintage guitar dealer, historian, author. Sure. Some a go-to guy. Aficionado. Yes. Yeah. You have some questions about old guitars, mm-hmm. mandolins, go to George. So we're having dinner, George and I, It's sushi bar. He loves sushi. And- that's good. George loves to talk <laughs> and I thought all right we're here yeah I'm gonna ask him about this I figured 20 30 minutes of conversation he'll get to the punchline yeah so I said George why do you think it was back in the teens and the 20s that we so quickly transitioned from gut the steel strings yeah and he thought for a moment and he goes yeah Segovia uh, Huh? Se- yeah huh? Segovia? Huh? I met Segovia my grandfather wanted me to go to Princeton in the worst way my parents were divorced, but I would come to visit. And he'd drag me down to Princeton for a football game or whatever. Yeah. So I come to visit one weekend. And he goes, guess what we're doing? I said, I'll bet we're going to Princeton. He goes, <laughs> Hey, we're going down to Princeton. I said, football? He goes, nope. This time we're going to go hear Andre Segovia play mm. in the Theater. And we're going to get to meet him. Because he said, I know him. Yeah. Cool. He was virtuoso, So he was older. He was in his 80s at that right. point. Got to meet him. Wonderful gentleman. So I'm thinking, Segovia? All I know is Segovia was an old man. But George tells me his theory. I'm like, maybe, maybe, maybe. So I come home and I Google Segovia. Yeah. Sure enough. In the teens, it said, young virtuoso, Spanish classic guitar maestro, Andre Segovia, comes to the United States on tour, and people are blown away. Mm. They're like, oh my God, I've never seen anyone play a guitar like that. So Mr. Segovia, I am a big fan, thank you very much. I also play the guitar, good for you. Uh Any advice for me, sir? Yes, practice, 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 and you must buy a fine Spanish guitar. So I'm thinking, okay, well, what happened between, say, 1840 right. and 1920? Two things, one was that the builders themselves moved up to Madrid, okay. where it has a much more temperate climate. I've been to Madrid in December, it snowed, Yeah. Okay. Right? Yeah. So yeah. similar to the northeast of the US. Sure and they perfected their game Mm. they didn't roll over and play dead they improved the product his endorsement moved the market away from us okay people said the maestro says i must buy a guitar from spain not a copy of a guitar from Mm. spain
0: so it became important then for martin to move away from the Spanish model of things because... Imperative.
1: Yeah, We yeah. had no choice. Yeah. I mean, we could have stuck with it. Evolve or... Right. Yeah. And so I often give talks in the museum mm-hmm. to business students, and this is one of those points where I'll say, yeah, we hit a wall. Yeah, And instead of trying to drive through it, we drove around it. <laughs> Found a way around yeah. it. So what I read recently in Vintage Guitar Magazine, they said there were steel strings mm-hmm available for fretted instruments in the late 1800s, but the quality was very inconsistent. Sure. That's why guitar builders stuck with gut as long as they did. Yeah. But now, because of the interest in the mandolin and also the banjo, uh-huh. string makers had perfected their art. Wow. So okay. now the strings are consistent. So we're like, okay, yeah. let's try that. Yeah. Put a couple on the guitars and I think initially the guitar's probably failed Hmm. because there's so much more tension. A lot more tension for sure. That we have like, okay, we need to do a little work here. Yeah. You know, we we need to beef it up. But again, you have to be careful. You don't want to beef it up too much, you lose tone. Right. And so that's one of the things I'll give my ancestors credit for that we still to this day use as a guiding principle what can we do to make this thing basically last forever Yes. and yet get as much sound out of it as possible. Yeah, And so we thread that needle mm-hmm. very consistently.
0: It feels like a constant theme just as we're talking about the history is innovation while still keeping the craftsmanship at the heart of things. You yep. still want to have that really, really high quality, that beautiful sound that everybody associates yep. with Martin guitar, yep. while also, you know, what's the next thing that we need to do to continue to yep. move forward?
1: And we were fortunate in that basically on the face of it, you would just look at that and go oh it's just a Martin guitar that used to have gut strings with steel strings. Yeah. Now internally we've done a little work. Sure. So it, it, the advantage we had is we didn't have to completely retool the factory. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I look at car companies where they, it's like yeah we have to come out with a new model every five years. So I'm like oh my god. Yeah. Thank god we don't have to do Ooh. that. That's yeah. <laughs> heavy lifting. <laughs>
0: So, I don't want to skip over any steps yeah. here, but I think probably the next big thing was, was cowboy music, right? Right. This country so, and, yeah.
1: the steel strings yeah. were in the right place at the right time. Exactly. Because, yes, these musicians, you think now, Appalachian music, mm-hmm. country music, uh, folk music. Right. Sure. Initially you're playing with your friends and family, mm-hmm. but if you're going to make a career out of it, you need some people to pay you. Yeah. Well, that means you need an audience. Definitely. And the people in the back of the audience want to get their money's worth. Mm-hmm. And that's where the steel string came in.
0: Okay, so you that needed some boominess. You could just yeah.
1: get on it, and the people in the back are like, I can hear that! <laughs> <laughs> so who do we have? We had Gene Autry, we had yep. Roy Rogers, guys yep. like that, yep. all playing
0: Martins. Yep. Is that right?
1: So, okay, now we're, we're here at the, at the point in the display when guitar historians say, alright, now what's happening at Martin is they're building a classic guitar with steel strings, and in our case, fortuitously, this guy, Perry Bechtel, mm-hmm. gets a hold of us, and Perry was a very famous vaudeville banjo player. And he said, this vaudeville thing's kind of going away. Yeah. And I don't want my career to go away. I am inclined to want to try and learn how to play the guitar, because I think then I can create a new career for myself. Interesting. He said, the, the problem is, of course, I want steel strings. Yes. Absolutely, because I'm used to that on the banjo. Yeah. The problem is that your guitars are so unbanjo like in terms of how they feel. Okay. Because the neck is wide and the, the body is 12 fret and it's like, it's awkward. Sure. Can you build me a, an acoustic Martin guitar with steel strings that has a neck that's more like a banjo? He actually wanted 15 frets clear. And boy, that's Ugh. tough. Yeah. What can we do? What can we do? What can we do? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The arch top guitar, which we did not invent. Right has a narrower neck okay. with more access. Yeah. Now, in this case, on the archtop, the angle is different. So it's like, oh, well, we've got to re-angle it to, to, to allow it to fit on a flat-top guitar. Mm-hmm. But there it is. And so by making him this one prototype, which satisfied him, he's like, yeah, that's what I'm yeah. talking about. I think what we also realized was steel strings need a new neck. Okay. For it to really work, yeah. you can't just put steel strings on a classic guitar. Right. And so very quickly from, say, the late 1920s through the 1930s, more and more and more Martin models began to be offered with the 14 fret neck. And oh, that's yeah. where players were like, now I get it.
0: You have a little bit more range, right. some higher and, and notes. And it's narrower because yeah. the strings
1: were narrower. You didn't need that big, fat right. fingerboard, and so that's right. then, you know, so this is the point at which musicians are like, okay, these, these are modern guitars. Yeah. These are contemporary flat top steel string acoustic guitars designed to play contemporary music yeah. in the 1930s. Al- <laughs> you can almost
0: see the music evolve as the instruments that they yeah. have at their disposal yeah. you know, evolves. And so having acoustic guitars like this probably allowed them to broaden what they, what they were able yeah. to do music.
1: I, w- I will recommend to anyone, if you get a chance, watch the new Ken Burns country music Serious? Oh, yeah. They talk about that. They talk about the instrument and the music evolved simultaneously. Yeah. Simultaneously. Almost a chicken and egg thing. You don't know, (laughs) you you
0: can't separate the evolution of both of them from one another because they happen so simultaneously. And then,
1: so then, the big gun Mm -hmm. arrives. No pun intended. The (laughs) the dreadnought. (laughs) Right. And so, the dreadnought, we believe that, and these are, that's an original Ditson dreadnought, Mm -hmm. we believe that the origins of the dreadnought go back to a gentleman named Major Kilikai Major Keelikai was a classically trained musician who, from Hawaii, who Mm -hmm. would tour the mainland for two purposes. One was make a living. Right. He was very good. People loved the band, loved the music. And he would also, given the opportunity, be glad to talk to you about his concern as a Hawaiian about how and why Hawaii was annexed by the United States. Fascinating. So he had a little bit of a political (laughs) bent to to his his madness. Sure. So he contacts us and he said, I I want a Martin. Mm -hmm. I have some very particular ideas about what I want. And he was famous enough and he was working with our biggest distributor that we said, you tell us what you want and we'll try and make it. Yeah. So we made him one. And in fact, right now, a friend of mine is working with the Bishop Museum in Honolulu to have a display to talk about Major Keelakai and his influence on Hawaiian music mm-hmm. with Martin guitars and this thing that he designed. Yeah. So from that, we believe, Ditson said, hey, there's something there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we, we took away the Major Keelakai bridge, which was pretty hilarious, <laughs> and we put a Martin bridge on it. Yeah. And, and, and Ditson said, we'll sell them in our stores. And we said, great, you know, and nobody else wanted them because it, yeah. was, it was like, that thing's huge. Right. It's not like all the other guitars you've ever made. Yeah. Too, too big. Too big. Well, um, right. Um, That's um, not a couch yeah. guitar.
0: Right. <laughs> right. Right.
1: <laughs> and it's still like a classic guitar. Mm-hmm. Got the wide fingerboard, slot head, 12 fret neck. Yeah. So, unfortunately, Ditson went bust mm-hmm. during the Great Depression. Sure. And we're like, what do we do? We said, yeah, you know what? We got the tooling, the fixturing. Let's keep it in the line. Didn't yeah. sell very well. Until Gene Autry, mm. who's doing okay during the Great Depression, Sure. Yeah. says, martin will you make me one of those big old dreadnought guitars and can you put your name on the, my name on the fingerboard and we said sure gene <laughs> not a problem so we make him this is a reproduction of gene autry's d45 Look it's the that. first one but you as you can see it's still kind of like a classic guitar yeah so what happened was gene said man this thing's great and he's showing it to his singing cowboy buddies sure and you're like gene that's really cool why didn't you get the modern neck and then mm. gene was like Cause they didn't, they don't make them that way. And so the word came back to us, you gotta put the new neck on it. Yeah. So we squared off the shoulders, took the, put the 14 fret neck on it and bam.
0: There you go.
1: There you go. There you go. And so I think there's the two advantages the Dreadnought has, it's elegant. Yes. It's imposing. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're a musician and you're up on stage with that thing, people yeah. are like, okay, We're doing I'm gonna things. hear some music. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: That's amazing. So who, Let's maybe run down some of the notable people that have played the dreadnought mm. style over the years. I mean, oh my God. too many to mention. Too I'm many sure. to mention, but, yeah. but I mean, you have these guys that started off in Gene Autry, yep. you know, and, yep. and, and kind of the cowboy country music. Right. right. Um, and then you look at it, and it's just so synonymous now with yeah. uh, with so many different. Right. So uh, let's go. Okay. Do
1: you want to go over here? Yeah. Let's, let's go. go over here. All right. So, in as we're walking, mm-hmm. World War II comes and goes. Right. All right. We win the war. Soldiers come home. And the guitar, both the acoustic and now the electric, are becoming more a part of American musical culture and also British music culture. Yes. From, I would say, after, and I think maybe even during the war, Hmm. because soldiers were in Great Britain, that there was this beginning of this transference of, hey, what do you play back home? I play this. What do you play? I play that. And you think about like the origins of Appalachian music, a lot of that came from Great Britain, Ireland. Yeah, so great it's a So it's this great constant point. trading back and forth yeah. using American guitars, <laughs> you know? They weren't using British guitars. That's a good point. They were using American guitars yeah. to, to do this trading of, you know, styles. Yeah, yeah. So grandfather's running the business, mm-hmm. Steady Eddie. He's, he's like, he was CF the third, he was like CF Junior. Okay. Very civic minded, mm-hmm. not particularly entrepreneurial, and then my dad joins the business ah. in 1955. My dad was more entrepreneurial and he catches the folk boom.
0: Mm, okay. Now,
1: I have a, a neighbor yes. uh, who went to Lehigh mm-hmm. and he said, Chris, I went to Lehigh during the folk boom. He said every weekend there were folk clubs on campus and at least one big touring folk band. Every weekend wow. came to campus. And so the the the, the superstars of that mm-hmm. particular era of course were the Kingston Trio. Right. But there were many, many, many bands trying to break into that thing because it became pop music. Yeah. You could make a good living playing an acoustic guitar, singing some songs, maybe originals or not, you know, yeah. old old standards. Sure. And so my dad joins the business and that the folk boom just would not stop. Yeah. And that's the reason we're out here versus North Street. Mm. My dad and my grandfather concluded the old building, which was multi-stories, multi additions yeah. is inadequate. It's mm-hmm. not a modern manufacturing facility. Sure. They're carrying stuff up and down the stairs. <laughs> oh. There wasn't even an elevator. You're carrying Ooh. stuff up and down the stairs. Stay in shape that way. Yeah, but right. Uh... That's what my grandfather said. <laughs> um, so in 1964, we came out here, mm-hmm. started to catch up to the folk boom. And folk music and rock and roll collide. Yeah. All right. So now we're into mid 60s all the way through the 70s.
0: We're talking Bob Dylan, we're talking Elvis, we're talking. uh, Crosby's Bills and Nash and Young. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Some of the biggest names in rock and roll and music just in American history. Um, And I know Elvis played a lot of uh, Martin's. Early in his
1: career. Yeah. 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 Later he switched to Gibson.
0: Nah, we'll, it, it happens. We'll, let that, we'll let that go, but yeah. there's so much history here yeah. just in, in some of the guitars that yeah. you have shown here, just in um, Americana. Yeah.
1: And I think the advantage we've always had is if you're a musician mm-hmm. and you're making a living playing music, playing the guitar, the Martin guitar was a reliable tool. Yeah. It was the craftsman wrench mm-hmm. of guitars. Maybe not the gaudiest, but it was there. When yeah. you got to a gig and you opened up your case, you knew mm-hmm. that tool was going to help you express your creativity in front of the paying audience. Right. And so even when it transferred from folk to folk rock, the folk rockers were like, well of course we're gonna play Martins. Yeah.
0: Why sure. wouldn't we? That's, sure. Everyone plays a Martin, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So then we have guys like, um, who else do we have that's, that's over there? We have George Harrison, mm-hmm. um, Let's see, you have, well, yeah, Crosby, Crosby Stills, and Stills Nash. Nash, and Young, and then Young, yeah. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes Young. Sometimes Young. Uh, Paul Simon has <laughs> sure. a guitar over here, yeah, you know, know, and so you have some guys just over the years yeah. that as you bring music forward and yeah. kind of get into, I think what people think of now as modern American yeah. music, yeah. Uh, people that really drove that forward, yeah. all playing Martins.
1: You know, I've read a lot about the, that Southern California music scene. Yeah so many of them were really into music. The history of, where did it come from? What, right. what informed this song that I'm writing? Well, because I studied all these old British folk songs yes. or these Appalachian songs or yes. country music or whatever, it's, this stuff is, it becomes very interwoven. Mm-hmm. And the, the musicians were, they were really, you know, right, this is what I play when I get paid, but when I'm hanging out with my buddies, I might be playing bluegrass. Yeah, right. Jerry Garcia loved bluegrass on a Martin guitar. Jerry Garcia played (laughs) bluegrass on a Martin guitar. It's not what he was paid to play, but. Right, (laughs) sure.
0: Well, it's always fascinating to hear what influenced these guys and and where they got, how they came by the style of music that they ended up playing. So let's
1: talk about that. Yeah. So my dad, Mm -hmm. being the entrepreneur that he was, yes during this boom, mm-hmm. made some acquisitions. He bought the Darko String Company, which was a brilliant move because guitar guitars need strings. Sure. He did buy a drum company, a banjo company, and a guitar factory in Sweden.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Probably a good idea in the beginning, turned out to be a bad idea in the end. Right. And unfortunately, about the same time that the demand for acoustic guitars dropped off precipitously. And I think, I think it might have been another Ken Burns show, where they said, they said, Music has runs. Right. No particular style of music is popular forever. And they said by the early late seventies, early eighties, that folk rock thing had kind of played itself out. Think yeah. about the Eagles. They were sort of the last significant folk sure. rock band. Sure. And even today people will say by that point the music had become very commercial. Mm-hmm. You know, very produced. Yes. I mean the Eagles were kind of a supergroup put together. Right. Okay, you're good at this, you're good at this. We're going to get you together, we're going to make a lot of money, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> and, <laughs> and they did. Simultaneously, in the marketplace, yeah, technology yeah. advances rapidly, starting with f- f- things like the Moog synthesizer, mm-hmm. which were cool, but cumbersome. Yeah. Well, when Yamaha came out with the DX7, everyone was like, well, wait a minute, do we even need acoustic instruments anymore? Right. If this thing can mimic the sound of a guitar and a bass mm-hmm. and a set of drums, and the guy who plays the keyboard's like, well, one thing is I don't need a guitar player, a bass player, and a drummer. I'll go to the Holiday Inn and take all the money for myself. Sure, sure. Right? yeah. And then disco, of course. Yes, yes. And so once again, the market moved away from us, mm-hmm. and not just us. If you were making guitars, particularly acoustic guitars, the 80s were a very difficult time, Yeah, very difficult. Okay, So my father had an interesting strategy. He retired.
2: <laughs> he, he moved
1: to Florida. He said, all right, buddy, yep. you're up. Well, not really. My grandfather okay. reasserted himself mm-hmm. as the patriarch. Yes. I am now. I'm out of college. Uh-huh. back. Decided to join my family's business. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a rotation out in the shop, which I'm very thankful for, because it gave me a great deal of appreciation for what my colleagues do every day.
0: You got to see the craftsmanship firsthand. I, got to, and, and, oh, yeah, yeah. I yeah. got to do
1: it. Oh, yeah. And I got to learn that, hey, this is a job I can do. This is a job I can't do right now because you have to do it for six months. And Mm -hmm. I I was on a fast rotation just to get exposed to it. And I was bouncing around the office Mm -hmm. and traveling a little bit. And the traveling in hindsight was probably one of the most important things for my career because I still travel. Mm -hmm. Ideally, anyone who's interested in buying a Martin guitar should be where you are, talking to me in the museum. Yes. Because when we're done, you might even go, I gotta get a Martin. Get <laughs> but if you can't come here, I'll go there. Yeah. Right, I'll tell you a quick funny story, whether this will make it or not, I don't know. <laughs> so a couple of the sales reps mm-hmm. um, had worked their way up territories. One actually became a sales manager. He had a heart attack. Oh. And his doctor said, this managing the sales force is too stressful. Go talk to Mr. Martin. Mm-hmm. So Press went to my dad and my dad said, you're a great salesman. Why don't you go back to, to sell? Press yeah. goes, that's great where do you want me to go frank he goes you know what i want you to go west of california he's like how far west he goes well when you run into europe turn around and come back oh so he gave my dad gave press that eurasia yeah that's your territory and press went over there and formed relationships found distributors and at one point he said you're going with me cool where are we going all right well we're going to japan that sounds like fun and we're (laughs) going to Uh, Where else do we go? We went away for a month. Yeah. Going to Japan. Great. We're going to New Zealand. Wow, fascinating. Cool. We're going to Australia. Cool. Of course, once you get over in that part of the world, things aren't close together. Yeah. So we spent a lot of time on a plane. (laughs) Um, And so what we would do is he would meet with the distributor and Mm -hmm. see the warehouse and have dinner with them. But he would actually arrange for Martin dealers to bring customers in and he would tell this story. Sure. He was was a great raconteur. Yeah. And he would tell the Martin history to a group of Australian guitar aficionados Mm -hmm. to try and convince them to buy a Martin. And I'm watching him, and he goes, we we were on the road for a while. He goes, all right, you know the gig? I go, yeah, Yeah. I kind of got it. He goes, I'm glad you said that, because tonight, you're up. You're up. All right. And I said, why? He said, because you can, you're Martin. You're Mr. Martin. If you can tell this story, people are gonna believe you more than me. And so that gave me the confidence yeah. to tell the story.
0: It's a big seminal moment. Yeah, I it think. was, it yeah. was.
1: Yep. Now, I had to take a class in public speaking because I was kind of, <laughs> but that's another thing. All right, so, so now my grandfather passes away.
2: Mm.
1: Acoustic guitars are down. They're down, yeah, yeah we went, peaked 23,000. Yes. This point in time, I'm running the business, 3,000. We lost 20,000 units. Wow. Yeah, over a period of two or three years. Just disappeared. Yeah. Demand went away. Yeah. And, and people talk about this. They'll say, yeah, you know, some of those Martins from the late 70s, I don't know. And I will admit that my father and his team were distracted. They were distracted by just what's going on. Yeah. Three acquisitions aren't working. Right. a little bit of madmen going on. And so after my grandfather passed away and the board took the risk mm-hmm. of putting me in charge when I'm in my early 30s, one of the first things I said to my colleagues, I said, look, if it's 3,000 guitars, we'll try and figure it out. You know, we'll, we'll downsize the business, but we've got to do better. Yeah. We, we, we've got to focus on some of these little things that we're hearing from our dealers and distributors and customers are not quite right. Hmm. Simple stuff. Yeah. Things you might not notice, but guitar builders and guitar players yeah. are like, you know, this isn't Martin's best work. Yeah. So when I said to my colleagues, I said, look, I always thought that my family's goal was to build the perfect guitar. Mm -hmm. We are human. We will never build the perfect guitar. But we can build more consistently almost perfect guitars than anyone else if we focus on that. And that resonated with my colleagues. They're like, okay, that's compelling. Chris wants us to go back to remembering that every guitar we make should be the best one we ever made. Right. Right. And so we pick up our game, and then MTV Unplugged happens. Mm. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. Um, so we, we did a documentary yeah. on the Dreadnought a couple of years ago to celebrate the Dreadnought's 100th anniversary. And the documentary filmmakers interviewed Jason Isbell. Mm. And Jason said, he said, I want to talk about MTV Unplugged a little bit. He said, I was a rocker. Yeah. I had my, my strat and my, my effects <laughs> and my amps. And he said, I started watching MTV Unplugged, and he's like, huh, you cannot hide. When you're mm-hmm. playing an acoustic guitar, there's no hiding. Yeah. It's you, your skill, and your tool. Yeah. He said, it really inspired me to become a better guitar player. Mm. He said, I watched these heroes of mine, sure, famous rockers. Little
0: known guys like Eric Clapton. Yeah, right, and, yeah,
1: right. <laughs> doing a really good job just playing an acoustic guitar. Yeah. And it was, he made a funny comment. He said, pretty much every one of those shows inspired me to become a better guitar player. He said, except when I watch Kiss, he goes, not so much. Not so- <laughs> That's hilarious. That's hilarious. So we're kind of
0: getting up more into modern time yeah. now. Yeah. And one of the big things that you really did was was um, ramp up production yeah. quite a bit. Yeah. And so you've really modernized in ways along you know the assembly process, yeah. the yeah. production process, yeah. um, while still keeping the quality of Martin guitars yeah. at its peak and and as a very, very high priority. How were you able to do that? How were you able to kind of reorganize things?
1: First, it required me to say it's possible. Sure. Because people were skeptical, Mm -hmm. even in the building. They're like, Chris, there's gonna come a point where we are going to sacrifice the quality. And I said, why do you think that? And they said, just because it seems like it's inevitable. I said, well, I don't think it has to be. Hmm. And I don't think it would be appropriate for us to allow that to happen, so stop thinking that way. Yeah my family's always used tools. Mm -hmm. If my ancestors had had access to the tools that I do, they would have used them. Sure, sure. So I will give credit to Bob Taylor that when we got exposed to Bob embracing what was basically a metalworking machine, and the advantage the computer numerically controlled router has is you can teach it to do a sequence of operations. The old school method, for example, we're gonna make a bridge, yeah. right? So we get a rectangular blank, blank from our vendor, mm-hmm. and we've got to convert it into that shape. Well, that requires multiple machining operations. Right. We don't do that all at once. Yes. So the old way was, see that bottom part where it mm-hmm. kind of dips down? Yeah, there's you, a would, slope there. you would put that in a fixture mm-hmm. with a big spinning blade, and you would just cut the bottom part
2: yeah.
1: on a hundred bridges, right? Okay, that part's done. What's next? Next the, step. Next yeah. step, we're gonna do these little things on the side. All right, uh-huh. so that blade's not correct. So we have got to take that blade off, bring another blade over, mm-hmm. then you gotta check your work. Is this gonna work? Yeah. You run one through, you pull your calipers out. Ah, I gotta adjust it a little bit. Then you're, okay, now we're gonna do 100 of these. Yeah. So you, what, with the computer-controlled numerically router, is you put the blank on a vacuum bed, and there's a rotating tool head. Mm-hmm. And you teach, digitally, on a screen, you teach that tool head this tool goes down and does that. That tool goes back up, the head rotates, this tool comes down and does this. So you eliminate all that setup and tear down. Yeah. A lot of wasted time. You're just doing the work. And so that's where we, and, and once we realized, hey, if we keep these blades sharp and we keep the tolerances, this is as good as anything we could do by hand. Yeah. And we can do more of them. It's always been one of the things we'll say about technology is it isn't just about efficiency. It has to mimic or improve the quality. Mm-hmm. If we're going to we cannot sacrifice quality for volume. Right. And so that's where you work with very specialized vendors. Most of whom are like what kind of wood do you cut? Ebony and they're like Ebony.
2: Yeah.
1: Ebony is (laughs) brittle. It's like, yeah, how about it? I remember years ago we're we're looking for new finish vendors Mm -hmm. and we're talking to some of the big guys. First of all, they're like, how much, how many carloads of lacquer do you buy a month? Yeah. And we're like, carloads? We buy like a a 55 gallon drum and they're like, (laughs) oh boy, we got a hot one on the phone here. They're going (laughs) to buy one drum of lacquer a month. And then they're like, well, what do you put the finish on? Well, one of the woods is rosewood. And they're like, no, you don't. And we're like, what do you mean? You don't put finish on rosewood. It's difficult. I'm like, yeah, well, yes. I wish someone had told whoever decided rosewood would work that 200 years ago. <laughs> but it's, so it's, it's, you know, and, and the other thing that happens in woodworking, mm-hmm. in terms of volume, when you go to a woodworking machinery show, yeah. most of the focus is on making machines that make flat surfaces right. very efficiently, right. because that's where the volume is. Yeah, Seats, mm-hmm. window frames, yeah. doors. When you're building a guitar, acoustic or electric, mm-hmm. there's a lot of what we call the third dimension, yeah. radiuses. Mm-hmm. And so the machinery has to be specially designed to do that special work. Sure. It's not off the shelf. Go to the Hanover Woodworking Show and say, I'll take one of those routers, I'm sure it'll be fine. It's like, I'll take one of those routers and then you're going to have to come over and help us fixture it up yeah. to make our very specialized products.
0: Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, it took, I believe, 171 years to sell a million guitars. Yeah. And then within the next 12 years, you I sold know. another million. Crazy. So congratulations yeah, on this amazing sustained yeah. success yeah. and becoming such an amazing and you know inseparable part of American history. Yeah. Um, and the cool thing guitars.
1: is that... Western music is, be, is loved worldwide, Right. so we do a lot of export business mm-hmm. and we are selling Martin guitars in countries around the world to musicians, amateur to professional, who are basically playing Western music or music that has its roots in Western music. Yeah. You know, when we sell a Martin guitar to China, they're not necessarily playing traditional Chinese folk songs. Mm-hmm. But when you go overseas, what you do see is, over time, musicians will begin to write songs that are about their world. You know, they start out singing the, the, the big hits, right? Mm-hmm. I'm gonna start out learning Bob Dylan songs. But then, if I'm really creative and, and inspired to be a singer-songwriter, mm-hmm. I'm writing songs in the style of Bob Dylan to talk about the situation in my particular culture. Yeah. And that's really cool.
0: That's that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's that blending of cultures yeah. and um, just seeing music carried around the world. Yeah. It's, it's an it's amazing universal thing. Universal
1: language. Yeah, Absolutely. Very fortunate.
0: Chris, thank you so much for oh, taking some time sure, to just show us around. This was sure. an absolute blast for me, and uh, I really appreciate your Good. time today. Good.